0: I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org.
1: Hello, I'm Alexander Rose, the executive director at the Long Now Foundation. A long time ago, Actually, not that long ago now, I guess. Uh, but uh, one of our fellows, uh, Stuart Candy, proposed this idea. Who's here tonight? So where's Stuart? Wave your hand. There's Stuart right there. Uh, proposed this idea of doing what's, what he called long shorts. So short movies about cool long-term projects that kind of uh, get the idea across. And a few months ago, uh, two Austrian guys I'd never heard of uh, sent some photographs into uh, to uh, the Rosetta Project, actually, I think, through uh, Laura Welcher, of a project that they did in Hawaii. And it was by far one of the, one of the coolest Long Now-inspired projects I had, I had seen. And so I asked them to make a, the first of the Long Shorts. And so we're going to try and show them before some of these talks. This is a five-minute video. Um, it's by uh, White Elephant Studios' Tobias Hestel Tob- Tobias and Florian Pushman. Uh, and uh, Tobias is here tonight, and uh, I'll start the video. And he came out all the way from uh, Australia for that little applause. Thank you. Or Austria, sorry. Perfect. So I'm going to start the video and then uh, Stuart will introduce Arthur Ganson and enjoy your evening.
2: For the Austrian-based designers Tobias Kestel and Florian Pushman of White Elephant Design Lab, the experimentation and exploration of materials and their excitability by external influences is an important resource of inspiration.
3: In our work we often set the preconditions for what will happen and we just let materials interact. Next to quite traditional tactics in uh, product design, our work also deals with a more holistic approach of form finding.
2: They're fascinated by natural phenomena and the potential of the qualities of material.
3: Having studied the lava material and how it advanced, the smooth and shiny surface it had. I thought, what if we tried to think of a way to shape and form it?
2: As the two designers did more and more research, it became clear that they had to go to Big Island of Hawaii. The island's Kilauea volcano is the most active volcano on Earth, and surface flows of the smooth Pahohoi type lava occur quite frequently. During their four-week stay on Big Island in February 2009, long and exhausting hikes were needed to reach the area of active surface flows. A rugged terrain, sheer endless oceans of solidified abrasive lava rock.
3: Although um, there's that massive amount of energy involved, uh, it's a very calm and peaceful situation.
2: They knew it was necessary to bring special protective gear in order to be able to get really close to the hot lava and to work with it. They obtained protective suits that are used in the steel industry. Discovering the reality of the actual setting, their view on the whole project and their approach was changed fundamentally.
3: This new ethical framework we applied changed the way we work completely. We even cut back some of the projects because we felt they were not really appropriate to that specific sacred area we found there.
2: Project Zero-2009 was one of the major works carried out by Tobias Kestel and Florian Pushman on Big Island of Hawaii.
3: Volcanic activities have been going on uh, since billions of years on this planet. Placing this symbol of long-term thinking in this context seemed to be just the right thing. The O in front of the 2009 uh, refers to the Long Now Foundation and indicates in a quite strong, powerful way uh, that there's a lot more time to spend and to plan for than just the next decades. This place represents the past, present and the future. It's about destruction and creation at the same time. Working on liquid rock is maybe the most fundamental thing uh, for a designer. I think you won't get any closer to the matter.
0: That reminds me of going to the movies when I was young. There was always a short subject before the main feature. Next we'll have cartoons and newsreels. Redo the whole thing. Imagine how pleased archeologists of the future will be when there's date stamps on the very stratigraphic layer. (laughs) The long now clock, the 10,000 year clock we're building in one mountain and then another mountain is a work of kinetic art. And um, as such, not only are we paying attention to horologists, people who've been designing clocks for a long time, but to a lot of other artists who work with mechanical things. You can see one on the right-hand side of the stage. Um, Arthur Ganson has been at it for 30 years. He's very, very adept. Uh, Not only do the things work well and present well, they inspire thoughts well. So he's here to tell tell us about it tonight, Arthur Ganson.
4: Hello? Okay, one moment. I need to switch... Great. All right, thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to be here and um, it's always a little daunting to come up onto a stage and talk about the work because really I make this work because I'm most comfortable like isolating myself in my studio and if you can imagine, I'm sure there are a lot of people in the audience who are like that, and you know what that is, to be in your solitary space and, and to work. Uh, so it's, it's a little strange to, to, to take some of the thoughts and to translate them into words, but I'm going to do my best, and uh, I'll see if I can uh, make some sense out of things. Uh, thank you, Stuart, for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Alexander, and... Uh, um, uh, everybody else in the foundation who's been so wonderful and helping to set this up. I really appreciate it. The, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a sense of how I work. I'm going to talk about uh, many different pieces. I'm going to see if I can uh, thread this idea of time uh, through the work. Uh, time is, a, is, a, is a, always a critical component for me. And sometimes I, I think about time in a very conscious way, where time itself becomes part of the subject of the piece, and sometimes I don't at all, where time is just naturally uh, uh, behind the scenes. The, we decided to call the talk Machines and the Breath of Time, and I've been thinking a lot about what, what that means and what it could mean. And, I think the most important way for me to think about that is that, um, that just as we breathe and I've been doing yoga lately and I've, I've learned that in, in my practice, my breath is the continuity through everything. It's, it's, it's basically the, the uh, underlying uh, force of continuity if I can always come to the breath and the breath is essential and the breath is always bringing me back to the present moment. Uh, I think the time itself is like a breath for these machines, because they can't exist without the passage of time. They can exist as physical objects, but really, uh, when when I came to make sculpture, without really thinking about it, I found myself creating pieces that moved. And I think for, for some reason I was just not interested in, in really just the physical object itself, but in the object as it, be, as it is in the state of becoming, as it's changing. And uh, so, so this, this notion of breath and time is, is always there in the background. And I'll talk about it in different ways. Um, A few things I want to say about the work and about understanding the work is that I will I'll I'll give you some of my thoughts about it, but I have a very strong feeling that that the in order for the for the piece to have any true meaning for anyone, they bring they they, they create the meaning. So if you if you feel a connection with anything uh, it's, it's, it's not really in the piece but it's really in you and it's all about your own experience that what you're bringing to it uh, and it's, it's, it's inseparable so I think, I think a lot about the fact that these machines come from a place deep within myself and they, they I, I kind of wrestle them into being, into physicality they start in a very non-physical way and uh, they start as an idea, they start as a feeling, uh, they start as a question, and, and there's always a, a, a real like wrestling, I think wrestling is a good word of like how to, how to bring this into some sort of a physical uh, manifestation. And then it's here, like this thinking chair is here as a physical thing, but you're observing it and y- y- all of your thoughts about it, everything you feel about it is true. It's irrelevant what, what I feel about it at that point. Uh, and if, if, if we talk about this feeling of the long now, which I, I, I love thinking about this concept, uh, the, I think the machines start in an eternal place and then they're in a physical place which is just really temporary. Uh, and it's only a matter of time before these will break. But I have this feeling that, that where they are when they're perceived and they're taken in to someone's consciousness, uh, to, their, to their spirit or to their heart, then that feels like it's an eternal place and that's really a way of thinking about the long now for me. So when you leave here, forget everything that I say because, because um, really... Any words that I have about them are kind of irrelevant. And the most important thing would be your direct experience of it. So I want to talk a little bit about this thinking chair piece. Because uh, I wanted to bring this, this, this physical object. The, um, the thinking chair occurred to me. There's a place... Uh, near my studio in the woods that I find myself going to and walking. And I've done this for many years where I'll just go to a particular rock outcropping and I find myself, like, walking in circles uh, on this particular rock outcropping. It's a very meditative thing to do and then I found out that there's actually many traditions that use walking in circles as a form of meditation. But I was doing this naturally and... uh, one, one day I found a stone that was sort of on the side of this rock outcropping, and I just had the thought that I wanted to make this self-portrait, this thinking chair. And I think actually the title is not very good. I, I think I'm going to change the title at some point, if you can do that after the fact, because, because really it's not, so much, it's not so much a thinking chair, but it's more a kind of being chair. That's, that's what I feel, or a, a feeling chair, so um, the the chair is going to be in on the side, and it's going to be walking in circles, and it will be uh, kind of like a clock for this talk as kind of like a mantra, a circular mantra for for this experience um, the I'm just going through some notes here. So, I'm going to take you back to how I started to make these machines, and I'll take you first back way before I made any machines, and I had the impulse to want to, to, uh, to make moving things. The first thing that I did when I was probably in, in like fifth or sixth grade was I made animated movies, and I would draw them on the edge of books. And I have one of them here. Now, we just, we just discovered that the screen is not showing part of the bottom and part of the right, so I hope that you can actually see the movie. But uh, this, is a, this is a little animation that I called um, The Great Race. And I remember drawing this. I remember that what was in my mind in that moment was that there were these two cars that were going to run down... The road and there was a boulder in the road and and all I wanted to do was I wanted to imagine how the cars once they hit the boulder would begin to flip over and turn over and how the how the drivers in the cars would be flown out of the cars and there's a lot of violence of course because when you're a kid you're totally into violence so I'm gonna I'm gonna play this let's just see how this goes Oh, I hope you can see it. (sighs) So then there's the rock. And I remember drawing this. I remember clearly. You see, there's a lot of... And if, now, now here's more gratuitous violence. So, there's like an ambulance coming. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> so, um, when I first started, when I first started to make, oh boy, we're losing. Well, you can imagine Madeline's fragile machine. Okay, um, um, when I first started to make physical objects, the, uh, it was in, in, in late high school, and I have to say I was, I was drawn to work with my hands because I was so painfully shy that I was not able to really talk to people. I mean, I could talk a little bit, but really about what I was feeling in my heart, I was terrified. Of sharing what I was feeling and I found that a way that I could uh, compensate or get around or to express myself is that I would make things for my friends and for people I cared about and when I think back on it now it was it was all I could do to tell people that I love them by making things so uh, I'm telling you this because it's sort of the umbrella on which, uh, under which all of this work exists because it was the foundational impulse for me to, to, to start to make anything. And it's always there. It's always in the background of wanting to express really what's in my heart. Um, and just very briefly, it's, it's kind of odd that I came to make machines because... In, in, in high school, I, I was in love with two subjects. Biology, because I had a wonderful biology teacher, uh, Mr. Daglio, who changed my life uh, in ways that I'm just now discovering. And also, I spent my senior year in high school uh, programming computers. I was completely obsessed with programming BASIC. And... I just, like, wrote computer programs all day long. Totally obsessed with it. So there's a part of me that loves that wonderful sort of logical flow of programming. Uh, And uh, I think also because I was so in love with biology and working with my hands, that was another aspect of me. And when I went to college, I had no idea what I would do. So, So I came into college actually... Uh, in the pre-med program, uh, imagining that I would go into medical school and become a surgeon. Because I just had this sort of very naive dream that I that I would love to do surgery. And I think maybe in one sense I could have done surgery if, that, if it was just doing surgery. But there was so much else that I had to deal with in terms of information to memorize and uh, I mean, I loved a lot of the courses in pre-med, but there were but my, my brain cannot remember information, uh, so surgery and med school started to look dim. But at the same time, I was taking art courses, and I started to fall in love with just the hours and hours of drawing, and that sort of meditative state of 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 being you know, with with the drawing. Uh, so accidentally, uh, in, in my sophomore year, just responding to to some project that I was given. And my, my school, UNH, in New Hampshire, was very traditional uh, um, art, art program. I didn't go because of the art program, but it has a very good art program. I was doing bronze casting and oil painting and printmaking. Uh, and uh, for some reason, I was given some 3D design project, and I started... <laughs> I started to solder up a few little pieces of wire, uh, and uh, I made a little gear, and just a, a very simple little mechanism, because I knew how to solder, because I had made a heath kit, which is like a little electronics tool, right? So I sort of knew that, oh, I'll just put something together. And all of a sudden, this, this, this whole world opened up, and... I didn't know it at that point, but I can look back and I can see what was happening. That, that um, I started to make these, these very fragile, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna run this, because this is, not, this is not an early piece. A lot of those early pieces have fallen apart because they were tin lead soldered. But, but this is very akin to what I was doing when I first started to work with wire. So I found myself making these very complex mechanisms and part of the challenge of, of, of making these was the physical challenge of, of, of holding the pieces of wire in space as I soldered them. And as the wire was getting hot, because I was using a tin lead solder, it's starting to burn my fingers and, and it was very much a physical challenge. Uh, uh, challenge to, to to see if I could actually build these things. So this was this was me doing my surgery. I created a little world in which I could be a surgeon, and because I was creating these mechanisms in space, I think that that was the part of me that wanted to be a computer programmer. I could take all of that logical cause and effect that was that that always felt a little bit dry because it was just in code and I could do all of that in in 3D space and it felt it felt visceral. And and then working with wire it, it became line in space. I'm drawing in space. So I could I could take all of my feelings and put them into these little fragile machines. So that's that's how these started with me, and I've, I've never studied engineering in any formal way. Uh, it's just been 30 years of making a mistake every time, but slowly learning, slowly learning through intuition about how things move and how things feel when they move. But the impulse for me to work has always been to follow uh, the feeling of the piece. I, I've always been a Driven to want to express, express a feeling. Thanks. And in many ways, those those fragile machines, they're they're like as close to oil painting as I can get, because those those pieces, like that that machine evolved, uh, it just grew. And it's 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 very much about plant growth. Now, this is a fairly early piece. I called it the Busyness Man. It's kind of about this frenzied feeling of time. This this little man has a long he's he, he, he's in his long now of frenziness. Um, so he's a little plastic figure. He's about like three inches tall, and. I remember uh, designing this piece. I started with the man. I I, I created a kind of a general uh, framework. I didn't think about how the mechanism would have to be designed uh, beforehand. And I gave myself the problem, the challenge, of having a hand crank that would only turn in one direction. And I had to solve all of the problems of making him walk back and forth. By having a crank in one direction, and those initial conditions led to, to that piece. And there's nothing in these machines that's that's that is superfluous. All of the parts are there for a mechanical uh, functional reason. But of course, I have great latitude with how I use the wire. But everything is there for for a, for a true functional. Now, there's a piece of knotted string there. Now, this, this, this machine was done, I don't know, maybe about 15, 15 years ago. And I, I um, graduated from just tin-lead soldering. I, I, I learned very slowly. It's like I evolved very slowly. I, all of the first machines, they were all put together with tin-lead solder, electrical solder. And any, any joints that were under stress ultimately just broke. So now basically what I'm doing is I'm spot welding the wire and then silver soldering the wire. So here's, in contrast, here's a very simple machine that is called machine with Chinese fan. And really just, I was just imagining, what is the, what, just, just opening a Chinese fan, what does it feel like? And I wanted to, I wanted to make the machine um, It's um, I'm gonna stop this for one second. There, there, there's. I think a lot about this edge between clarity and ambiguity, and I think that there's a there's a golden, very important place uh, when 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 we're working in the arts to um, that that if 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 the object is is crystal clear and completely ambiguous at the same time. I think that is the condition that allows a viewer to both comprehend it and not understand it, and, and, then, and then naturally to make sense, you're going to create your own story with it. If it's too clear, then there's not enough to dream with. And I think if it's too ambiguous, then maybe there's not enough to dream with. So there is kind of a fine line that I try to hit. And now this this piece really started off as, as a very simple toy. I mean sometimes the pieces I feel like they give me back more than I put in. And I I I was just I was just playing with the wishbone after dinner one day, imagining that this was a cowboy who had been on his horse for too long. Now I want you to forget all of that, because then that just like distorts your, but, but that's really how this happened. And I was just, in a very playful way, just taking the wishbone and walking it across the table. And I thought, well, I could just make a little machine that would, that would cause the wishbone to, to move in that manner. And then if the machine itself was just on wheels, then the wishbone could drag its machine. So it becomes a kind of a, um, Confusing. Um, it's a little bit of a paradox. Now, once I, once I got the machine done, I feel like, I feel like because the wishbone is, is is part animal, then that of course, that's of course where we enter, and I feel like, of course, all of these machines are self-portraits. And so, I feel like that is me, and very much I, I always feel like that. But I'm, but I'm learning. I'm slowly, I'm, am slowly learning. Okay. Um, machine with concrete. This, this piece, uh, I've I've made a number of versions of, and the, the first piece came to me. Uh, I remember the moment I was walking by the GSD at Harvard University and I just had this thought, it was kind of a mathematical, playful thought, that I could take a series of reduction gears and if I made the reduction sufficient enough, then, uh, then I, could, I could create a kind of a strange situation and I was imagining... Uh, that, that if, if I took a series of worm reductions and uh, if I took a reduction of 1 50th and, and then started to stack 1 50th upon 1 50th, then I could come up with a machine where one end would move so slowly that it might as well be fixed and not moving at all. And I remember the first, the first um, manifestation of the piece I made out of wire. And it didn't express the idea at all. I was just working out. I was, I was, caught, in the, I was caught in the math of it, and I wasn't really feeling it. And I made like a little uh, spiral tower with these wire gears that I make. You turn the little bottom crank, and it was the same principle. And the top top gears were actually soldered in place, but nobody knew it, you couldn't see it. So it didn't, it didn't really convey the feeling. So after that, I, I re-envisioned it and I realized, oh, I have to use substantial gears. I have to use real, real materials that you, can, that you can get a feeling sense for. So I made this piece machine with concrete. Now, what you see there now uh, there's the last gear that's embedded in concrete and this is a series of of 12 50 to 1 reductions the motor is turning at 212 revolutions a minute now we're going to pan across and so the first one's turning 150th of that and then the next one is 150th of that and 150th of that and before too long, it's moving so slowly that it will take the last year, it'll take that last year 2.191 trillion years to turn. <laughs> so you get to that point, you can do anything. Is that considered a long now? <laughs> I don't know. So... Um, so I embedded it in concrete, and um, I thought about many um, manifestations and versions of this, and I've made just two others, but one, one piece that I, I, I have yet to make that I really want to do is to have the machine, the, the, the mechanism trailing off, and then the mechanism is actually uh, looks like it's been melted off the pedestal. So you have a working machine on one end, and then you have the melted machine on the other. Um, I, was, I was then asked to, to make another version for a museum in Germany, and so I made this next version, which I don't have video of, uh, but you can get a sense. I used these spur gears, and I oriented them uh, at a slight angle, and the difference, with, with this version, is that the large gear, and you're going to see an image, um, the large gear there is, is actually ca- cut through the block of cement, so it's very clear, clearly it's not going to move. In this case, there are many more gears, and I forgot what the exact ratio of, of that one is. But then I was just recently... Uh, invited to be a part of a show in Austria and they really wanted to, um, to show um, the machine with concrete. And I wanted to make another one and to, to actually uh, think more about what the final reduction would be. Because with the first two, I, I had created the machine but hadn't really contemplated uh, how slow it should go and what what's it about. And I decided that, that a nice target point would be the Big Bang, which people, some scientists imagine, is 13.7, give or take a few billion years. But 13.7 billion years, that's what I've read. So I... Um, I made the next machine, and, uh, and unfortunately I don't have video of this one either, but that's what it looks like. This is like so awful to just have this moving machine, but just but so a picture of it. And I'm showing you a picture because, I'm showing you a picture because sometimes, or very often, the subtitle for my work is Machines in the Nick of Time, and, I had to get this piece sent off to the show, and I literally got it done, um, and into the crate the moment that the shipper was arriving, and I was going crazy. It's like, what, I don't even have time to take a picture of it or take any video, and then it went away. And this image was actually shot by the people at the show. Um, But the last gear, which is embedded in that block, uh, is will we'll, we'll turn once every 13 very closely once every 13.7 billion years, and I decided that th- this one I would title "Beholding the Big Bang," because it feels it feels very much uh, <clears throat> like I'm looking back to that point, point. and as I think about these machines, it's not it's not about the math. And it's not about the ratios. It's, uh, for me, it's, it's about the feeling of the intense activity that's going on on the left. And the very, <coughs> the very quiet stillness that's happening on the right. Excuse me. <laughs> <coughs> and <coughs> it's very much about this duality that I feel actually in my own being uh, um, which is, which is <coughs> beholding my own action, my own activity, my own frenzied activity, my own drive and desire to move. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and the other part of me which feels timeless and very quiet uh, and very still. So I think that, that for me, this is, this is where I was, what I was trying to get at in the making of these pieces is to somehow make a, um, somehow envision this, this duality that I sort of feel in my own being. <clears throat> in many ways, it's, in a very strange way, it's kind of a deep, a deep self-portrait in that sense. Thank you. So this next piece, in thinking about time, this next piece, um, (coughs) I titled it Corey's Yellow Chair, Corey's my son. And he had, for a long time, he had a little yellow chair in my studio. Um, (coughs) I'm just gonna run through this piece. It's a very short sequence. So when I, when I first imagined this piece, I looked at Corey's chair, and I saw it explode in my mind, and I saw it exploding up and out. I, I first actually imagined the piece on a pedestal, and I imagined a life-size chair, and I imagined this, this life-size chair exploding up and out into twelve pieces. And The only important thing here is that the gesture with which the imagination was, it felt very clear that the explosion was instantaneous. And the moment that the chair exploded, the pieces were moving at infinite speed, flying away. Uh, And somehow, with the force of some sort of gravity, these pieces that flew away from the center point would, would slow down and a kind of gravitational Force would would bring them back to the center. Uh, They would reach a point of stillness at the far extreme um, of their period and then begin to coalesce and to condense into forming a chair again, uh, approaching infinite speed uh, the moment that the chair is in existence and it's there for just a moment and then it's gone. So... I can very clearly imagine all of these things in my mind. I can imagine, I can see the pieces moving with, with infinite speed and stopping instantaneously. But of course you can't do this in the physical world. So when I had the, the, the thought to make this piece, already I knew that it was just going to be a very weak stab at this idea. That, 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 that all I could do would be to, to, to just suggest what, what the true feeling was because there'd be no way I could really build it, truthfully. And then there was a lot of development. I said it started off as an imagination with 12 pieces exploding up and out, and that gradually um, worked down to six pieces, uh, and I, I, I changed the orientation of the way I was first imagining the machine and ultimately came up with, with that version. Now... Um, Some of you have seen the actual piece, but that piece that you just saw, the chair, is only this big. It's about four inches tall, and it's exploding to about four feet. And I did make another larger version, uh, which is also uh, in a museum in Germany right now. But um, really... Really, the essence for me, I, I, I found well, what was driving that piece, was, was, was a question of, um, of, of when is now, like when is now, and, uh, a in, very often at the beginning of a of a Buddhist Dharma talk, the teacher will will clap their, clap his or her hands. And that moment of the clapping is kind of a signal of the now moment. And I, I think I was, I was reaching for that in the moment that the chair was coalescing, uh, asking when is now. And, just, and, 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 and I wanted the chair to, to, to be there for just an instant because the now feels so fleeting. It's just gone. It's here and it's gone. This, this next uh, series of pieces uh, came as a result of, of meeting uh, someone in Boston who was part of a movement theater company. And together we created a piece called Shadow of a Doubt, which, which was uh, a play that involved real people and large machines on stage. Uh, in a drama that the the subject of the drama was a guy who was a kind of a tormented inventor like nobody I know um, a tormented inventor uh, slash investigator and anyway I, just, just, just to give you some sense because I'm going to show you a machine called a knife throwing machine uh, but the the I wanted to talk about the, the notion of the play, which, which, which was very much also about thinking about this moment of now, that we had this feeling that, that um, if, if, we, if we think about all of the uh, activities of life as a kind of mechanism that, in which we are a part of and... There are, there, there are so many chance events, so many moments that have brought everybody in this room together here in this moment. Now we're sharing this moment. And after the talk is over, we're going to disperse and we'll go about our lives. And um, there's, there's a feeling that... That It's it's kind of like an hourglass feeling where if you were to think about all of our lives coming to this point, this shared moment, uh, this common moment, and then dispersing. So, of course, there are an infinite number of these moments happening all the time. But we had this feeling that this could be kind of the backbone for this play. And uh, I made a series of large machines that would would somehow represent the fabric that was, that was in the background. Uh, this, this machine here, and I don't have video of it, was a very large, uh, it's about this tall. I called it the unfolding machine. And at one point in the play, this, this machine would come out from, uh, from stage right and it would, it would move very slowly out. And then uh, the, the arm uh, on, on top would, would very slowly raise up. And there was a series of gears that were rhythmically pulling it up. And the arm would raise up. And then the machine began to fall. And it went through about a three or four minute slow motion fall in space. And I have another image here, which is the machine... it's downward it's it's almost reached the ground now on the way right you see there's a little extension there's kind of a head there and when the machine very gracefully (coughs) came down to the floor it released a crystal ball that that rolled into the hands of this tormented inventor who was sort of sitting in front of it and that was, that was one focus moment in the play. And the next focus moment was that throughout the entire duration of the play, this machine, which is the letter delivery machine, that started off on stage right at the beginning of the play, in the context of the play, you know that, that the protagonist is to receive a letter from his wife at the stroke of midnight. And everything is coming down to this moment, the stroke of midnight. So in the audience, you can see the letter on its way. Because this machine, that, 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 that wheel that's off to the right, I'm sorry, off to your left, that, that, that foot would, would very slowly get pushed out and pulled in and pushed out, and every time it would do that, that machine would inch forward very slowly. So we had to choreograph this play around this machine that was actually moving forward d- during the whole production. Uh, it's, and, but you can see it working toward the place in space and time where the letter is to be delivered, and that's the letter way out in front. So you can see you have an anticipation. Oh, yeah, the letter is reaching that point. We are coming to the, to the point of midnight. And um, on the other side of the stage, stage left, was the knife-throwing machine that uh, at the beginning of the play, it, it, it cocked itself and it raised the arm and it's holding a very substantial piece of metal, which is a real throwing knife, and it's pointed right at that point where the letter is to be delivered. So it's all coming down, and there's a very strong feeling that these, that these machines are in cahoots and that they're really after him, or this is fate somehow. And... Basically what happened was, uh, there was an intense flurry of activity at the stroke of midnight. And uh, right at the moment of midnight, suddenly there was silence. And he's there and he reaches for the letter. He's in the middle of the stage and he reaches for the letter and the knife is trained right at him. Just before he grabs a letter, it falls out of the head of the letter delivery machine to the floor. So he has to reach down to pick it off the floor, and at that point, the knife machine, it throws the knife over his head into the wall right behind him. We were very careful. We were very careful because it really did throw this 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 knife. Now making this making the knife throwing machine was totally crazy. Because I had never made a knife throwing machine before. <laughs> and it's like I just got so like caught in the idea, oh my god, this is gonna be really cool. I gotta do this. <laughs> but I'm telling you, it's like I just, I imagined what I would have to do to throw the knife and I made the parts. And I'm working down my, in my basement at this time and the ceiling is this high, right? And I let it go and the knife hits the ceiling and like flies over the floor. It's like, oh my God, this is, this is terrible. And of course, the production in which this is gonna be in is like set, in, you know, because we, we've committed to doing the play at a festival in Boston. So, a little bit of anxiety there. Um, but it was it was a wonderful learning journey to, 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 um, to go to, to, to figure out to, to solve the problem, like how am I going to get this machine to throw this knife And I did get it to throw it pretty accurately. Uh, I mean it, it, it would throw that knife um, 25 feet across the stage and into the wall, and it was usually it would hit the same exact um, spot uh, so <clears throat> okay. What's that? Usually. Let me see. It's it's 8:20. Okay. Okay, I just want to um I'm going to just This, in a way, is another way of looking, imagining the passage of time. Uh, So this this piece... uh, Came as I was uh, playing with a computer program that was simulating objects in space. And uh, I, was, I, I, I put together a very simple virtual system and gave it the gravity of the moon, and I had this piston moving up and down and, and having this object, uh, this irregularly shaped object moving. And I was just fascinated with watching this object move and I was so inspired that I wanted to make a physical piece uh, that would express this feeling. And the first, the first manifestation I was imagining was I would take information off the computer. I'm, I'm always trying to use the computer. I really want to use a computer in my work. But I never seem to end up doing it because I sort of like... I just like get pulled over to pure mechanics. But... Um, there, 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 was a, there was a lot of evolution in this piece uh, in terms of uh, imagining how it should be built. At first, when, when, when I imagined that I wanted to have a, ch- a cat that was moving back and forth, I first imagined the cat would have to sort of move back and forth in a kind of random way. Uh, and I spent, I spent a few weeks building a very complex mechanism that would make this cat go back and forth. And then after it was all done, I just thought oh, this is like way too visually noisy. It's just awful, and and that was that was what told me I had to actually have a very constant cat back and forth that would then help to um, express the irregularity, the, the 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 beautiful irregularity of the chair of the chair, and that disc in the back is counterbalancing that chair. And the chair is on an axle that goes through. The disc is on the same axle. So the mass of that disc is added to the chair. So the chair wants to move like it's a larger object. So it's a very simple system, a very true system. That's a doll's house chair. It's, it's, that, it's like four inch. It's a little plastic cat. This is one of the pieces that I just love to sit and watch (laughs) because I'm always like waiting for, sometimes, sometimes the conditions are right that it just makes the most beautiful like triple flip one direction and then the leg catches just right and it makes another beautiful flip the other direction. But it's totally unpredictable. Is that a terrified cat or what? <laughs> when I found that cat, that was the perfect cat. <laughs> oh. So I have a few pieces here that, that are about sort of another way of thinking about the machine that is um, imagining, imagining uh, the sensuality of the human being and expressing this with a machine. Now, I just have a very short sequence of this. This is the first one of this series. Uh, and I call this machine with oil. And all it's doing is, is it's just bathing itself with oil. Now, this, this is the, the second machine. Um, I was asked by a friend uh, at one point if I had a machine. She, was, she wanted to have an exhibition of erotic art and I didn't have any pieces, but this piece popped into my mind. This I called "Machine with Grease," and this this is probably about maybe ten years old. Now, this is a very recent piece that I called my little violin, and.
5: Just imagining a,
4: a simple relationship.
5: You go to my head, and you linger like a haunting with pain. And I find it spinning round in my brain like the ballrooms in a glass of champagne. You fall to my head Like a sip of sparkling bird and And I find the very mention of you Like the kicker in a booty <clears throat> The to my feet can over me Can I say to myself A smile that makes my skin so chill <clears throat> It's like a snowmower with the clouds in July
4: A simple, a simple little parody. It's I like, I like the piece because it's good, clean, fun, and you can show it anywhere. Um, a completely different uh, notion, and this is a, this machine, machine for softening hardened hearts, was, it was a very, this was a very difficult piece for me to make because I had the 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 thought of it and uh it's it's really kind of about the evolution of the soul and the evolution of my soul and considering the possibility that uh that there is no evil and but if there's no evil but there is spiritual sickness and uh and that, if I that whenever I look out, and I see uh, I see evil, then it's really my own heart that I need to contend with. Uh, I'm not explaining this well, but uh, I'm going to show you this piece. It's it's very new, and I'm not really even sure how to talk about it. But I had this imagination that there would be a machine. I used probably the archetypical uh, symbol of what we consider evil, which is Adolf Hitler. And I wanted to make a machine. I had the idea of making a machine that would caress his heart. And I call the machine, uh, Machine for Softening Hardened Hearts, with this notion that it would, um, it would be softening Hitler's heart. But the action of using the machine is, um, is an action to uh, step forward and perhaps soften my own heart in the process of operating the machine. When I had the idea to make the machine, I was repulsed by it, and, I, and I, I wanted to do it, but it was really hard to actually build it, and I remember I went to the bookstore looking for images of Hitler, and I was imagining putting it together, and at one point it was just, I just thought, no, I just don't wanna do this, but then I kinda moved ahead and, and built it. So I don't, pardon? No <laughs> no but it's it 's a it 's not many people have actually seen that piece yet, and um, it 's a very new piece and i 'm not even i 'm not even i mean clearly i 'm not comfortable talking about it because i 'm not really sure how to talk about it yet, but that it it it, it came from it came from a an, an impulse and a need inside to want to to uh, um, create this experience that how could, I, how could I caress his heart? How could I possibly do that? Uh, but um, I find that, that operating the machine ends up being very much an opening experience from my own heart, which is really about forgiveness and about Changing how we how we look, as I said. Changing how we look about at, at, at what what is evil and what is sickness. So, thanks. Thank you. Um, okay, I have one more video to show you, and then we can go to some questions. And I like to show this piece last, because in many ways it, it feels like the most complete piece for me. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's complete now in its video form. The, um, it, it, it was imagined uh, while I was doing the play, Shadow of a Doubt, with those large machines, and I wanted to have a whole machine theater evening where there were no people on stage and there were no play, but there were these little vignette moments with machines on stage. So I imagined this very simple gestural dance with the machine and a chair. And uh, I imagined it first to Spanish guitar music, uh, where the machine would come out from behind the curtain, and, and there'd be a lone, a lone chair sitting in the center of the stage, and the machine would <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> and the machine would come out and do its gestural dance) um, when it was, this piece that that you're going to see was exhibited only once for seven weeks at my first um, sort of substantial solo show at the DeCordova Museum in Lincoln, Mass. After that seven weeks, it was like, it was a real struggle to keep it working. So I ended up taking it all apart. But I did do a video document of it. Uh, There was no music when the piece was shown because it would have driven people crazy. Just in that space, but with videotape, I was able to add the music, and it actually feels much more complete now in this form. And the music is is a piece that I wrote when I was when also when I was very young. I was playing guitar. I spent a lot of time by myself playing classical guitar, so that was always a part of my life. And uh, when I when I put the video together, I I took. Uh, <coughs> a short piece that I had written for puppets and adapted it to be the uh, soundtrack for the dance. So in that way, it feels like a very complete piece because it's taking drawing from all parts of me. So I'm just gonna let this run. It starts off um, with a time lapse of the installation of this piece in the the, decor of a museum made by uh, a guy named Mark Weisberg. was living in Boston at the time, and he made this time-lapse little movie of the installation. So you'll get a sense of the scale of the parts. That was a real bentwood chair that you see. I could go on for days about the mechanical problems of this piece, but I'll spare you. That's kind of interesting is that I did build this piece in my basement with a ceiling of this tall. So um, it was a whole series of building parts, bringing it outside, seeing how it didn't work, bringing it back down, rebuilding it. But after many, many, many many weeks, I, I got it to work.
1: So much. The, um, so, aside from being the director of the foundation, I'm also the project manager on the, the 10,000 year clock project. And I know we have one of the engineers, Chris Rand, is here of the clock project. And um, one of the things that we struggle with as makers of things, and actually, I'd like a show of hands how many how many makers of things are here in the room tonight?
4: Yes. Wow. <laughs> nice.
1: About 90%. That's great. Uh, high concentration of Maker nerds, oh. perfect. Yeah. Um, is th- one of the things that we always struggle with is tolerances. And um, I think that one of the beauties in your work that you show is, uh, is actually how little tolerances you need to achieve really high degree of effect. And it's, um, it's a pleasure to see you explaining it. <laughs> <laughs> um, a question from uh, Kevin Kelly. Are you ever attempted to make a machine that is useful?
4: <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, and, I, and I, I've, made, I've made a number of useful machines. I've made, I've made quite a few useful machines also. Uh, the, 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 for me, the real passion is to make these machines that are nothing but contemplation. But um, I did spend actually three years... Uh, I, I came up with this idea for a toy. Anybody hear of tubers and zots? So some of you, yeah. Well, I um, came up with this idea to, for this toy, and there was no way to make it, and I ended up spending like two and a half years uh, in my studio with a few other friends uh, and making production tools. And it was it an was incredibly exciting, interesting uh, three years of developing these tools that would work with foam and very soft aluminum wire, and there were all there are many steps to the to the process of making this toy. Uh, each one had its own like myriad of problems, and it was such a juicy experience to solve all these problems. The um, the, the there's there's such a commonality. I mean, because I'm making I'm making machines that have an ultimate ultimately have no utilitarian function, but everything about them is utilitarian. So I, 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 share, I share everything with all engineers. I mean, I'm, I'm, I have to obey the laws of physics. I want these pieces to move, to move and to work. So uh, there is a certain amount of rigor that has to be um, put into them and many serious problems to solve uh, to, in order to get this little piece to work. So, really, the the process of engineering is the same for something utilitarian and something like this.
1: Um, Max, just Max, apparently. Um, <coughs> your machines display a sort of education of the hands which is now increasingly endangered, um, this room notwithstanding, clearly. Um, how do you think the uh, mm. solid state circuitry and miniaturization affect mm. our relationship with everyday machines as a whole and losing shop classes and mm. schools and things like that? Mm. Did you have a shop
4: class? Yes, I yeah. did. Yeah, well, I, in, in, in high school I had a shop class and I was we were working with wood. I didn't do any metal working. I remember working a lot on the lathe. That's, um, so But <clears throat> I don't know, I was always, making stuff with my hands as a little kid. It was just, as I said, it came, for me, it came as, as a form of personal expression. Uh, I actually didn't spend much time taking apart things. I was building things, but I was never really, like I didn't take apart clocks or, I, I, I didn't approach it. It, did, it, it didn't come to me in that way. But I can see how, how the, the explosion of um, all things digital uh, is, is a real inhibition because you can do so many things with processing that used to be done uh, by needing to understand uh, systems in the physical world. Um, I, th- I think that... Um, maybe, maybe because there are less farmers. <laughs> I mean, maybe we need more farmers, right? Because when you're working on the land and you you have, right? It, wasn't that the backbone of 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 our capacity to build and invent? Didn't it come from the fact that we were actually, like, we had stuff and we had to tend the land and we had built a cotton to, gin? Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, it's, I mean, it's the same reason we arrived on mechanics for the clock, right? Because yeah. yeah. if you arrive and the electronic thing isn't working, there's no reverse engineering it. Right. Uh, and, right. They reverse, and the mechanics are magical always, which you proved so well. Yeah. Um, hmm. Do you usually envision, uh, this is from Stephanie Gerson, um, do you usually envision many or possibly infinite solutions to the same problem, and choose among them. Or, uh, does does one thing come to you from the beginning, and you build it?
4: Um, that's that's a that's a really good question. Uh, the uh, very often the 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 piece will will start as a as a feeling, and I have no idea really how to build it at first, and it'll just need to. Um, it'll need to percolate and I'll contemplate it for quite a while before I have a sense really of how to approach the physicality of it. Uh, that, that's that's generally the case. Sometimes, sometimes a piece will be inspired by finding an object and that will trigger a thought and then maybe it's a clearer pathway. And uh, in that case... There's also a kind of a connection with the world of puppetry, because the object is kind of like a puppet, and I'm a puppeteer. And the first step is to play with the object, and then to imagine the machine as the ultimate puppeteer. But uh, very often they actually have to sit with me for a while before I have a sense, because there are, there are so many possibilities. And also, the building process is always like it's always, it's always teaching me. Because I think with every piece, I don't seem to get any better at it. Where like I, I think, okay, well, this is how I'm going to do it. And I start building it, and uh, and then it's clear, oh no, that's not going to work, or that's that's not doing what I imagined it would do. Uh, maybe the thing that I'm getting better at with experience is 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 knowing how to approach the building process, <clears throat> so I can solve the more global problems. Initially. Because I think I think when I when I first started to make the machines, I would get all wrapped up in one little detail, spend a lot of time building it, and then realize way down the road that actually that's like completely useless. That's 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 not I I, I can't I can't use that. Uh, so if if I'm if I'm getting better at anything, which it, it, it's it's having like being able to step back and to look at the the the, the overall and to ask. What are the general questions, and what are the sort of general tests and um, and mo- and and maquettes and uh, models to make, or the first steps? And sometimes the machine uh, can very naturally evolve from from that point. So, because I think the best the best machines evolve in a way where somehow I'm not really, even though I'm making the decisions. I'm not really making the decisions that it, 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 it's like, once they get started, they, they, can, uh, they can grow and develop in a, in a very natural way. Um.
1: We, have, uh, we have two questions from someone named Chris, but they appear to be two different Chris's, uh, no last names, um, but mm-hmm. they are related and they're related to the last question. The one is how long do you spend on these? Is it weeks, months, years? And... Um, are there other artists like you? Are there colleagues that you talk with regularly? Is there a, is there a guild meeting that everyone can go to?
4: I think is what thats. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, f- for me, the, the pieces there either either take they either take uh, a week, maybe generally, a week is like the shortest time to really get involved in something. Uh, a few weeks, a few months, maybe the longest piece has been like a year and a half or so. Um, when, I, when I made the large version of the exploding chair for Fano, that was probably about a year and a half, but that was only because I spent a half a year trying to do it with servo motors and decided, no, I have to do it mechanically. Uh, um, so the, 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 range, the range of time is, is completely completely variable. Sometimes I, I like them to take a lot of time, though, and there's something I wanted to mention earlier in terms of the, the, the time spent. That, the, like, uh, with, with, with the wire machines, it's, um, I love sitting there and building them. I mean, it's, 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 it's such a process of, of, of submitting to the fabrication and to and to just enjoying that process it's like it's like knitting sometimes or just this working with the hand just just spending the time with my hands and with these parts and uh, so i think i think there's a real satisfaction there's a real joy in just in just being being with the with that sometimes the, 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 the there's if if the pieces do somewhere that becomes a kind of imposition, and I have to, I have to stop it short because maybe with most of these pieces I would never stop building them. I, I, I'm sure a lot of you understand this, where you can, can you can always get it better. You can always sort of refine it and keep developing it. For for me, sometimes the the pieces they'll they'll never they'll never stop. Uh, and in terms of in terms of other artists i mean there are, there are so many around i wouldn't say that i there there's a particular group that like like a small group that i hang around around with but but um i feel like there's there's a a fairly large network um of people i mean there, there there's certainly a number of people in boston who are working um uh Lately I've been somewhat secluded though. So I'm not I'm not regularly getting together with, with similar makers. And I think that's actually that's actually a problem <laughs> because I find that I that I can I can be very isolated in in my working process. And every time I get together with other people who are building, I'm always so inspired by, by how they're solving problems and what questions they're asking. Uh, so, um, so, the network is there, and this question is actually uh, reminding me to plug more deeply into it.
1: Is is anyone from Maker Fair here tonight? Oh, the creator of Maker Faire. Okay, so is there, an no. invi- is there an invitation for him to come out next year? Okay, well, Long Now presented there last year and we had to explain our stuff all day long and it, oh. it, uh, it does great things when you have to explain yourself all day long. So we're, we're fairly late, so I'm gonna just cut it short to the one last question um, that is the number one asked question in the whole pile and I bet you're gonna guess what it is. What's with the chairs?
4: What's with the <laughs> chairs? What's with the chairs? <laughs> Yeah. Well the first the first chair was the machine with chair, the really large one, and then and then the next one was the little exploding chair and and then I the next one was was Margot's cat, the floating and then this one. The um chairs I think that that without consciously deciding that I was going to use chairs for any particular reason, I think that that, that we, uh, the chair is, is kind of the perfect object because we have a world of knowledge in our bodies that we know with our bodies. We, you know, we know with our minds, but we also know with our bodies. And we know what a chair is through the experience, the physical experience of interacting with it. And I think that, that using the chair uh, is tapping into your visceral experience of what a chair is, and you bring all of that to the creation of meaning when you see the piece. So I'm using them because when I, when I make a piece with a chair, very often it just feels right. Uh, and after thinking about it, I think it's because of that deep understanding that we have in our bodies That 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 gets brought out and used to to create the meaning. So it's a physical understanding.
1: Well, I've been an admirer of your work for years, and I want to thank you for coming out. And um, we clearly need to cast part of our clock in concrete. (laughs) Um, My takeaway from tonight. (laughs)
4: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you.